for since I was with you last I've been most of the time in India and over two and a half weeks I think it is altogether I was there and just seen some just tremendous things happening I, I could take all morning I just want to say you tell you that God is powerfully and incredibly at work just trying to think that this time last week I was in uh, where was I <laughs> I was in Goa on the west coast of Bombay. Monday morning I flew up to Bombay, had a fantastic day in Bombay. And then Tuesday morning I flew back to England and then just changed planes and flew back to the States. I got back here late Tuesday night, so I'm still sort of wondering where I am. But what I see is that the same mighty God is at work everywhere. Now, I've been teaching to you in the last visit and continuing in this visit, I've been teaching, trying to teach you this amazing and wonderful, fantastic subject of the grace of God. I hope some of the principles are beginning to sink into your hearts now. Last night we looked at God's grace to forgive. You need supernatural power to love and to forgive the way that God loves and forgives. Amen? And there's a power there for us to be as free as God in loving and forgiving. And that's a tremendous grace which we need to know. This morning, I want to spend this morning on another great area of grace. I want to talk to you this morning, and I feel the stage has already been set for me, I want to talk to you this morning about the grace of giving. Now, you can give at all sorts of levels, and I want to just briefly mention other levels. You can give according to Mosaic law. That is, you've been taught evangelical principles and you give because you're afraid of what will happen to you if you don't. Amen? And people, Christians, still live under a a form of evangelical law that's no different in its character to the Mosaic law which, of course, the Jews lived under. And by the way that we're taught, it says in Hebrews 7 that the Levites, under the law, took tithes, and you feel like sometimes it's being taken from you rather than that you're giving it. Do you know what I mean? And, and the, the, it's a fear principle that motivates us, and it's not at all the principle of God's grace that motivates us. Now let's get it very, very clear at the beginning. God does not need our money. Amen? If you give, it's for what it does for you, not for what it does for God. Get that principle absolutely clear first of all. When my children were given presents of packets of sweets and and candies and, and, and cookies, I would teach them to go and give them around to other people, including giving them to me. Now, I didn't need their candy, but they needed to learn to, forget, learn to give. Amen? So they were taught to give, and they were told to give one to mummy, give one to daddy, and we would say, oh, thank you very much, and we would eat it, whether we really needed it or not, because we wanted them to discover the joy of giving. Now the whole purpose of giving is for what it does for you. So if you don't like giving, if you don't want to give, God doesn't need your money. But you will set into process certain principles which will have a very powerful effect upon your life. Now the second sense in which we can look at giving is in what I'm going to call the New Testament law of giving. As well as Mosaic laws of giving, there are New Testament laws. And these New Testament laws, they work 
in the realm of the spirit in a similar way that physical laws work in the realm of the natural world. A good example would be in the physical world would be the law of gravity. Now the law of gravity is a law which works whether we believe in it or not. Amen? If I stand on a high building in Orlando and leap off that high building, I will accelerate to the ground at a certain predictable speed because of the law of gravity. It doesn't matter whether I'm English, American, Mexican. It doesn't matter whether I'm tall or short, educated or uneducated. It doesn't matter whether I'm poor or rich. I accelerate to the ground at a fixed speed because of the unvarying law, the law of gravity. I can even leap off the building and say, I don't believe in gravity! I don't believe in gravity! That doesn't change, the law still works. <laughs> Amen? Now, there are certain laws in the spirit that work in exactly the same way. We looked at one last night, which is, I didn't bring it to you in that form, but there is a law of forgiveness. It says in scripture that if you don't forgive, God will not forgive you. Amen? So if you hold resentment in your heart, if you keep unforgiveness agendas in your heart, it makes it impossible for God to freely forgive you. It's a law. It works for anyone, anywhere, anytime. And there's a law of giving which is spelt out for us in Luke chapter 6 and verse 38. Jesus said these words, and perhaps we could just read that as we introduce ourselves to this subject. Come to Luke chapter 6. And verse 38, is, I'm sure you know this verse, but let's just read it. You come back to verse 37, you get that other law I just mentioned. Judge and you will not be judged. Condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, men will put into your bosom for with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Now there's a whole series of spiritual laws. Now these are nothing to do with Moses. These are laws of the Spirit and they operate in the New Testament. Amen? So what we're being told here is that God will pay back to you what you give to him. Not only in eternity, as David's already mentioned it to us, but in this present life. You see, God is only required legally to give you back nine times what you give to him. Would you like to live on nine times what you give? Good. Well, if you're living in the law of the... then, then that's not a threat to you, it's, it's a promise. Amen? So that's the law of giving, and it's a principle which works... And I think within six weeks of being saved, I was living in that principle. We, my wife and I saw it in Scripture. It was never taught in the church. It's so obvious in Scripture. You don't need it to be taught in church. Amen? It's there in the Bible. We started to do it. We were a young couple. We hadn't got any money. We hadn't got enough money. And we had to make some serious decisions about whether we were going to obey this principle or whether we were going to spend God's money on ourselves. And we made the decision that we were going to start living in obedience to Scripture. And we went through various tough trials. I don't want to spend time on these things, but I do want to say this to you. Everything I'm teaching you this morning, I've lived it for many, many years. The law of giving in the New Testament, I've lived for something like 35 years. Then God took me on to another level of giving, which I want to mainly concentrate on this morning. It's one thing to be under the law of giving in the New Testament. I'm not talking about Moses' law. It's altogether another thing to be into the grace of giving. 
Now, I lived for probably a decade or more, maybe 15 years, living at the law level, the spiritual law level, the New Testament law level of giving, and sure enough, it worked. Now, remember this, that this principle, it's a bit like investing in the stock exchange. If you've ever looked at these financial magazines and you see how stocks grow over 10 years, 20 years and 30 years, it's a graph that sort of does that sort of thing, but it's always going up. Amen? Now, if you look at it in the short-term temporary, you might invest your stocks in, say, the middle of September, and then all the stocks take a dip. So if you are not in long-term faith about the matter, you can pull your stocks out and experience a loss. You've got to keep your nerve and hang in there. Over the short term, your fortunes go up and down, but over the long term, it relentlessly grows. Now that's a principle of finance in the realm of stocks and shares. It's a principle of finance in the realm of the spirit also. If you live in that, oh, well I put in all those tithes last month and I didn't immediately get blessed, so this month I'm not going to tithe. It's like pulling your shares out when the, the market's at the bottom rather than at the top. It's an unwise thing to do. But if you keep your nerve and keep investing in the kingdom of God, it inevitably grows. And if you look back over 10 years and over 20 years and over 30 years, if you are faithful in that New Testament law of giving, you, will, you can look back and say, God has abundantly prospered me. There were ups and downs. There were times of difficulty. There were trials. There were moments when I was tempted to pull out of this thing because it didn't seem to be working. But if you stick in there over the long term, you see the increasing prosperity of God. And that's my testimony and the testimony of many others also. Now that's the law of giving in the New Testament. Now it was supposed to have been somewhere around about 1970, I would imagine, when I discovered the principle of the grace of giving. And that's what I want to spend our time on this morning. If you could turn with me now to 2 Corinthians and chapter 8. I'm assuming that you're familiar with the laws of giving in the New Testament. I want to deal now with this other matter, the matter of the grace of giving. I want you to come to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and I'm going to read from verse 1. Moreover, brethren, we made known to you the grace of God bestowed upon the Macedonian churches. So what was it that came upon the Macedonian churches that enabled them to be the kind of givers they were and the Bible says it was a grace bestowed upon them. It wasn't natural, it was supernatural. It was something that came from God, it was part of God's being, it was part of God's heart which was released to the Macedonian church so they literally began to live and give like God. Remember how I taught you that the heart of, of grace is defined for us in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, His divine power granting to us everything necessary for life and for godliness. There's a power that's released from God that allows us to increasingly live like God, to be like God, to think like God. And in this particular respect, to become a giver like God. Would you like to become a giver like God? That's the question. Well, then you're going to need grace. You'll never get there except by grace. And this amazing grace was released upon the Macedonian churches. It was not on the Corinthian church. 
the Corinthian church at that particular time was the center of commerce. It was, a, it was like the Houston, if you like, of that whole area. It was a port, it was a, it was a financial capital. The people who lived in Corinth lived a much better lifestyle. They were at the center of all the trade which was going on all over the Mediterranean. And they experienced a, a growing prosperity. The strange thing was, it didn't make them more, more generous, it made them less generous. That's often the case. You'll often find in the church it's not the rich people who give well. I'm not, that's not always true. But until the grace of God comes, it just seems such a lot to give away, we don't really continue to be abundant givers. Now, up in the northeast of, of what is present-day Greece was a group of churches, Philippi and Thessalonica in particular, that were the churches of Macedonia, and that area was relatively economically poor. So I want to make this point, first of all, you don't learn the grace of giving out of your abundance, you learn the grace of giving out of your need. That's the time to give. It's when it doesn't seem to make sense to give, that's when you learn the grace of giving. And these Macedonian churches we gather were not that well off economically, they weren't doing too well. Verse 2, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. Isn't that a staggering thing to say? See, I just taught these things recently. I've taught them for years in India. And India is now pulling out of its great economic depression and I've seen people's lives absolutely transformed because they're getting hold of these principles long before they themselves are prosperous. You begin this in your poverty and it's beginning in your poverty which causes you to climb the economic scale until you now have the resources to give as you want to give. So if you're poor, this is the time to start. If you haven't got enough money, this is the place to begin. Oh God, I really need the grace of giving. Not in your prosperity, but in your need is the place to start. And out of their deep poverty, they abounded in the riches of their liberality, for I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing. What a great word that is. They were freely willing. They were longing to give. Not out of their abundance, but out of their need. They said, our passion is to give. Imploring us, verse 4, with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And this they did, not as we had hoped, but first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that he that as he had also begun, he would also complete this grace in you as well. For as you are bound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you are bound in this grace also. So there's a grace which makes you this kind of extravagant, amazing giver. It's a supernatural ability. It's the divine power of God coming upon people until they have the very heart of God they say, I'd rather give than live. I'd rather give than eat. And that's something supernatural that you cannot possibly get into apart from the grace of God. Now, if you want it, God will give it to you. The question is, do you want it? Several years ago, we were in England and over our 35 years of living so-called by faith for about 35 years now, I've not had a fixed salary, a regular job. I've just trusted God to, and my wife to supply our needs. 
We've lived this way all the time in India. We continue to live this way to this present day. And over these 35 years, my testimony is, is the incredible, wonderful faithfulness of God. He has more than supplied our need. But during this period of time, there have been one or two periods when our faith has been tested. I don't want to go into all the detail. It's not important that I should do that. But we've been through some pretty severe trials. But only once in maybe 10 or 12 years. It's not the normal way to live. But once in a while, God allows the devil, I believe, to test the sincerity of our faith. And we were going through such an experience, and I believe every Christian, at some time or other, has to go through trials of faith. It's all part of God's training. It's all part of the devil being allowed to test the, the reality of our faith in order that God might be seen to be righteous in pouring out his abundance upon us. Amen? And so we were going through this period. It lasted seven months. And for seven months we were suffering severe a privation. We were actually in England on a visit back to England at the time. Everybody around us was doing well and we hadn't even got enough to eat. I'd go and preach at meetings. They wouldn't even see fit to give me a gift. A gift. I'd come home having preached my heart out and they would drive away in all their new cars and I would get into my rusty old van and drive home with an empty petrol tank and say, there's nothing. They just, they, they said, I thought they preached a wonderful word but God somehow wasn't allowing them even to give me any kind of honorarium. And I tell you, the temptation to get bitter about this was enormous. I learned a lot about love in those days. And I tell you, God was working things in me which were so valuable, I appreciate now, looking back every minute of those seven months. At the time, I hated every minute of those seven months. It's afterwards that it works the peaceable fruits of righteousness. It isn't pleasant at the time. And we were struggling. We, I remember uh, for, during that period of seven months, we had nothing in the house. Everything that we had eaten, we'd eaten, now we, it was a principle of ours, we would never ever go and borrow money. If God was putting us in a, to a tight situation, it was God that was going to deliver us. I was well qualified, there was plenty of work around at the time, I could easily have gone and got out and got a job, but God said, no, I want you in the ministry. Well, why then aren't you supplying my need? Because you're going through a trial, that's why. A, a local Christian farmer, I remember he dropped on our front doorstep he dropped a sack of potatoes. It was just time of potato harvest. And for three months, for three weeks, I'm sorry, for three weeks, we lived on a sack of potatoes. That's all we had to eat for three, for three weeks. And as this period was coming to a close, and I won't, won't go into all the detail, we had, we had a, an infestation of uh, wood-eating beetles went into our house. And all over the house they were eating away the timbers. And I needed to get the, the company in to do the treatment, but it was going to cost a lot of money. Now, I had never, ever in my life ever written a cheque for money that was not in the bank, and I'm not suggesting that you should ever do that. <laughs> Except if God's putting it to the test, you see. In this particular day, I had this estimate, and I said, well, Lord, we need to get this house treated, but it's going to cost this much of money. And God said to me, write the cheque. I said, God, the money's not in the bank. I'm not going to write the cheque without the money being in the bank. And God and I, we had an argument for three weeks over this. <laughs> I would not write the cheque because the money was not in the bank. And then God said to me, have I not said to you, have you not preached this many times, that my word is as good as money in the bank? And I said, yes, Lord, but I'd rather have the money in the bank. <coughs> he said, write the cheque, and before that cheque is honoured, I guarantee the money will be in the bank. I heard God say that. This is after this seven months of trial. And I remember this, I think it was on the Thursday or the Friday, I, fight, I wrote the cheque, 
I got these guys in to do the work. I wrote them the check. They went off with the check. And I said, Lord, Monday morning they're going to cash that check. I knew that they couldn't get there till Monday. I knew that. I said, God, by Monday morning they're going to cash that check. You better make sure the money's in the account. And God said, leave it to me. And we went off that weekend to preach at a church. I went to this church. I remember uh, in Britain at that time you were given a small allowance for every child that you had. And this little allowance, which was a tiny sum of money, it would be probably about two or three dollars per child. It was quite a stupid amount. But it allowed us to buy a little bit of gas and put it into the tank of this car because I had no gas. We, I was walking to meetings. I had nothing to put in the gas tank. And this was a 30-mile journey, which was impossible to walk. At least it would have taken a long time to walk. And so we, we, we used this money to buy some gas to put into the tank and we got in with all the children and I said, to, and we were going to have lunch at this church. I said to the kids, I said, eat everything that you can. <laughs> I, said, I said, stack up. I said, this is, your, this is your one big chance to have a real good meal. So we went, we had the family all prepared. <laughs> we were fasting, but it, we hadn't really got much choice. I mean, it was, it was a tough day. And as we were driving to this meeting, this is what hit me. There was Eileen sitting in the, in the car, in the van. We hadn't got a car, it was just a little old van. It was a rusty old van. And I said to, I, Eileen said to me, she said, you know, this, the thing that really hurts me is the inability to give. She said, I've got nothing to give the Lord this morning. And I wasn't even thinking about it. I was thinking, well, I'm just trying to live. She said, oh, she said, Lord, she said, Lord, give me some money that I can give to you this morning. And I thought, well, yeah, that would be nice, but that's not the top of my priority list right now. I'm thinking about what am I going to do about buying food for my family. So as we drove to this meeting, and Eileen was praying to God to give her some money that she could give it to him as a gift. She said, because God, I so long to give to you, I realized she had something that I didn't have. Now, I was in the law of giving. She was in the grace of giving. Amen. So we got out of the car, parked the car, and as we were walking towards the building, before we even got into the church, a man walked up to us. He walked up to Eileen, not to me. And he put into her hands a sum of money. Now, I've just calculated out quickly, it would be roughly equivalent to about $200 today. He put $200 into her hand. And her eyes, she said, oh, look! He said, the Lord's given me something to give. I said, you're not going to put all that in the offering, are you? And she said, yes, the Lord gave it to me to give. I thought, this crazy wife of mine. <laughs> so we go into this meeting and as the offering comes around, she takes this $200 and puts the whole lot into the offering. And I think, dear Lord. But I was getting convicted. I thought, she knows something about giving that I don't know. You see, it was more important to her to give than it was to eat. And I didn't know about that sort of giving. See, that's what you read about in this Macedonian church. They'd been gripped by a grace that only a supernatural God can give to you. And she put that $200 in, and uh, after the meeting, we went and had this fantastic lunch that I was telling you about. The church did on this occasion give me quite a, a good honorarium. It's quite a nice, but it was a check. And I just went, I said, I don't even think we've got enough gas to get home. And now she's given all that money away. What are we going to do? We had another great evening meeting and one of the elders said, I'd like you to just come home with me and just have some coffee and maybe a bit of dessert and then uh, he said, I just something I want to share with you. So we went back to this elder's house and we sat down. He was a businessman, not a man without substance. And we went to his house and his wife disappeared into the kitchen. 
Now this has never ever happened before or since. On this one occasion in 35 years this has happened to us. As we were sitting there talking to the man, the wife seemed to be in the kitchen for rather a long time. And then she suddenly appeared and she had one of these large, you know, Kellogg's cornflakes boxes. It was the one that they put 36 packets in. It was about a, you know, a, a meter cube. It was a great big box. And she came in and she said, she said, as I was in the kitchen, she said, the Lord told me to empty my larder, empty my freezer, and put everything I had into this box and give it to you. And there was milk, there was cornflakes, there were things that we hadn't seen for weeks, we hadn't tasted for months. This great bulging box of groceries and goodies that we've never, never seen for months. And she, and she put it into our, into our arms, because see, in Britain, on a Sunday, every shop is closed. You couldn't even go and buy anything if you had any money. And I was amazed at that. And then this man wrote me a check and the, he said I just want to give you to bless you with another gift on top of what the church gave you and the check he wrote was precisely the amount that I was going to need to pay off this uh, you know, woodworm treatment company it was exa- and, and then, he, then he put some money into my hand so I even had cash then so he said let me empty my wallet as well he gave me cash so I could buy gas on the way home and I realised that this was God and the trial was over now, from that day to this, and that will be way back in 1970, we've never been through another severe trial. You see, if you pass the test first time round, God doesn't have to rerun the thing. <laughs> if you fail the test, he says, right, let's go through that course again, because I want to get you into the place of graceful giving. Now, I learned from my and I said, oh God, I want to know what Eileen knows. And I've cried out to God, not just simply to fulfill the law of giving, but to know the grace of giving. And by the grace of God, I do know that grace now. Amen? And that's what I want you to know. It goes way beyond the legalities of giving to, the, to you get God's heart, you get God's spirit. You, in fact, you get God's life, you get God's power, and then afterwards you'll get God's resources to satisfy a heart which longs to give. It would rather give than eat. It would rather give than live. Now I knew nothing about this. No human being knows anything. It has to come to you from God. I'm asking you, would you like that grace to come upon you? Because if, if that grace can come to you, then you can now become a source of blessing. Let's just read on in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 because there's two whole chapters of this. So we said, we, verse 6, we urge Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in diligence, and in love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. I want you to cry out, oh God, I want to abound in this grace. See, until this grace has come to you, God can't trust you with the other kind of grace that I'm now moving on to. You see, until you've got the grace to give upon you, you're not safe to handle large financial resources because some of it may stick to your fingers. Amen? But once you've got this grace upon you, and you see, I've got a fantastic ambition now, just over the last few years, I have got such a burning desire to be a millionaire and it's entirely for the purposes of the kingdom. I know that God so touched my heart now that if I was to receive millions, and in fact I'm now being in touch, put in touch with people that have got millions. It's the first time in my life that I'm touching those sort of people. And I realise that God says, I can trust you now because you've got a grace-filled heart, I can trust you with those sort of resources. Once your heart is filled with grace, 
to give, then he can then release the other forms of grace which we're coming on to, to satisfy that heart longing. Amen? If you come for a moment to Acts chapter 20, keep your finger in, we're coming back to this, come to Acts 20 just for a moment. Verse 32, And now, brethren, I commend to you God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Now, what we tend to think about is, well, how rich I'm going to get. No, what we're being taught here is how rich we're going to become in order to be a grace-filled giver. Amen? So he talks about the grace of God which comes through the word, which is able to build us up and give us an inheritance among those who are sanctified. I've coveted no one's silver or gold or a parable or, or a power. You see, this is not this is not the greed of acquisitiveness. This is the grace of abundance for the purposes of giving. Have you got that? Read on to the next. Yes, and you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. I have shown you in every way that by labouring like this, you must support the weak. In other words, Paul's main motive for working was to have the resources to give. Can you hear me? Let me repeat that. Paul's main motivation for working was not to live and to have, but to give. That's a New Testament principle. He said, I'm going to work with my hands in order, I must have the resources to give, especially for those who are too weak to go and get their own resources. So his motivation for working was to have the resources to give, and having the resources to live were a secondary priority. What about your motivation? And then in that context, it goes on to these wonderful words, it says, um, verse 35, I've shown you in every way that by labouring like this you must support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus when he said it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. There's more joy in giving than there is in receiving. So when you make 10,000 next month, say, oh, thank God, I've got 10,000 to give away. I'll have to live on some of it, but, but the motivation of my heart is all the resources I'm going to have to give. Now that's what happens when the grace of God comes upon you. You become excited with the prospect of giving. You don't become excited with the prospect of having. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive when the grace of God has come upon you. Now, I knew nothing about that, even though I lived in the law, the spiritual laws of giving, for, for a decade or more. I knew nothing about this grace, but I do know about it now. It's transforming. I tell you, I have got an ambition to be rich in order to just loose it out into all the purposes of the kingdom. If I had $10 million, I would know exactly what to do with it, and I wouldn't even buy a new car with any of it, because I, frankly, I don't need one. The one I've got is just fine. I wouldn't fill my wardrobe with new suits, because I don't need any. I've got enough. But I tell you, I have an ambition for resources to give them away to the work of God all over the world and I tell you the joy of being able to write checks and give money away is more than receiving checks it really is I've really got to that place now it took me a long while to get there but I'm there and I want to say oh God I want this grace to come upon my life so I'm now motivated to give not motivated to live 
I'll live and then give a little bit on the side. No, that's simply the law of giving. I'll live to give and, and I'll have to manage to spend a little on myself. That's the grace of giving. What are you living in today? Let's read on. Come back now to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It's a very logical progression. Come down to verse 8 of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. There's nothing compulsory about any of this. If this becomes Moses' law to you, then don't do it. Can you hear me? Well, I'll have to give after that message. No, if it's not in your heart and it's not burning in your heart, then this is not the motivation of grace. But if it's the motivation of grace, it'll be a, there'll be a joy in it and it'll be a motivation of love. It'll test the sincerity of your love. Come to verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. See how many times this word grace is coming. Can you see how it's coming? It's woven through all this stuff. This is grace, grace, grace all the way. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor that you might follow his example and live in similar poverty. Is that what it says? Now listen, this verse is set right smack in the middle of dealing with the grace of giving. The, the, the context of this verse is clearly to do with finances. And we're told here that Jesus, who as the second person of the Godhead, God the Son, lived in the incredible riches of heaven. We can't even imagine the riches in which he lived. And when he came to this earth, he came as a man. He didn't come as a rich man. He came as a poor man. But there was a motive in his poverty. It's not the normal lifestyle, beloved. He became poor for one specific reason, which is taught us here. Why did he become poor? That through his poverty, we might become, come say it, rich, financially prosperous. You see, once you've got the grace of God upon your life, once you've got the passion to give, motivating you, once your heart is like the heart of God, then God says, right, now I'm going to release the resources to you to become a rich giver. If you're going to be a great giver, you've got to be rich. How else can you be a great giver? Amen? Now, let's just watch this for a moment. If, I'm just going to mention this briefly, but if you trace the line of the seed... You know what I mean by the line of the seed? It speaks in Galatians 3 about there was one seed which began, if you like, from Abraham and went right the, through the generations, came through to the Lord Jesus Christ and has now become the church. Do you know what I'm talking about when I talk about the seed? Yes or no? Wave your hand if you know what I'm talking about. Otherwise I'd have to explain it further. It speaks about the church being the one seed. It being the, the generate, being the genealogy that was going to inherit all that God promised Abraham. It was to Abraham and his seed that God promised the world. Who is the seed? We are. Amen? It was through Abraham and his seed that God made all these fantastic promises and Jesus, if you like, was the, the, the seed that caused that to be fulfilled. But he was the seed that went into the ground and died in order to produce the seed which was going to inherit all things. Does that make sense to you? Is that, is that okay? Right, if you trace the line of the seed beginning with Abraham, Isaac, 
Jacob and go through the line of the seed, Joseph, and then it jumps from one, gener- one tribe to another. It goes then to the tribe of Judah and comes out again in David and Solomon. I've not timed this morning. It's a great study to do a study of the line of the seed. But this is my question. If you go right through the line of the seed, from Abraham right through to the church, were they rich or were they poor? What about Abraham? Was he rich or poor? Who made him rich? God did. What about Isaac? Rich or poor? Who made him rich? What about Jacob? Rich or poor? Who made him rich? Come on, what about about Joseph? What about him? Or King David? Or King Solomon? You go to anywhere in the line of the seed, were they rich or were they poor? The answer is they were all rich. You see, what did Jesus do? What Jesus did was he took the curse of poverty in order to liberate his seed, the whole line of his seed, from the curse of poverty. What did Jesus do regarding sin? He took sin upon himself and became sin. Why did he become sin? That the line of the seed might be freed from sin. Is that not true? How did Abraham become free from sin? Because of what Jesus did for him at Calvary. Amen? How did David rejoice in the forgiveness and the righteousness of God because of what Jesus did for him at Calvary? Amen? Why are you rejoicing in the freedom from sin today because of what Jesus did for you at Calvary? He became sin to free you from sin. And you expect to live free from sin because Jesus took sin upon himself at the cross. Amen? What about sickness? Did Jesus take sickness upon himself? Why? that the line of the seed might be free from the curse of sickness. Now you're beginning to see why he took poverty. Not to set you an example to live by, but to take the curse of poverty off your back so you might live in the prosperity of God, with the grace of God, and might rightly handle the riches which are yours in Christ. Amen? Your riches are material as well as spiritual. Do you believe that? And if you know how to access the grace of God, you're going to cash in on your material prosperity as well as upon your spiritual prosperity. But before God can trust you to handle your grace rights, if I could put it that way, I'm not sure whether rights is the right term, but your grace blessings is probably a better way of putting it, then you've got to have the right heart. The reason that God can't trust you with the grace of his material prosperity is because you have not yet got a grace-filled heart. Can you see that? Doesn't it excite you? So for our sake he became poor. Why? That through his poverty we might become rich. That we might materially prosper. So if you're not materially prospering, you have not yet accessed the grace of God upon the Lord Jesus to liberate you from poverty and to release you into prosperity. Now, you may still be living in the bondage of sin, not because God hasn't already dealt with it, but because you haven't accessed it by grace, because it's by grace we're saved, amen? You may not be living in in physical health because you haven't yet accessed what Jesus did for you at Calvary because you haven't obtained the grace to live in physical health and well-being. So it has to be accessed by faith. There's nothing automatic about this. It's there, as I mentioned to you when I was here last time, it's credited to your bank account, but you've got to learn how to access the bank account through the activity of faith. But if you don't believe it's there, then you won't go get it. If you believe it's there, say, I'm going to learn how to access this. Amen? 
Now let's move on into 2 Corinthians chapter 9. This is a continuous argument and we haven't time to develop it all, but it's a great couple of passages. I want us to come down now to chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians, a continuous argument which has gone on for two whole chapters. We're coming down to verse 6 of 2 Corinthians chapter 9. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So the measure that you reap will be the measure that you sow. This is the same principle that Jesus taught us. This is, if you like, this is the law of giving in the New Testament. It's the measure that you give, it will be measured back to you. You can't get the fullness of your resources released to you until you have, first of all, become released in grace-filled giving. Amen? Come on to the next verse, verse 7. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, not because you must or because you think, oh, I better give. Don't, don't do it like that. It goes on to say, in that setting, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. The word, as I'm sure you know, is the word hilaros. We get our word hilarious comes directly from it. God loves an hilarious giver. Someone who's so captured by the grace of giving, he says, oh, 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 I'm going to give $1,000 this week because God's so prospered me, I, I can manage to cut back on all my spending and I've managed to release a whole $1,000 to give this week and I'm so excited, I can't wait for the moment when I'm going to give it to God. Oh, hallelujah! You see, if this church was an unusual church, I said, right, anybody that needs $1,000, just take one of the checks that are in the, in the envelope and help yourself. I tell you, there'll be a lot of people come to the offering time then. <laughs> see, but it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And a miracle has to take place in our hearts until we become an hilarious giver where the excitement, the joy, the absolute unspeakable happiness at being able to give just takes possession of us the way it constantly fills the heart of God. We actually then touch the very heart of God. And grace can bring us to that place. Come now to verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you. So there's a grace for giving, now there's a grace to release the abundance of supply. When God's got your heart right, when you're giving, not because, of your, your, not because you have to, not grumbling about it, not doing it out of necessity, but you've been released into hilarious giving, God says, right, I see that heart. I, there's someone ready now for me to fully release the grace of supply. It doesn't say God automatically. It says God is able to make all grace abound towards you. That you always having all sufficiency in all things may have abundance for every good work. Now notice what it says there. You see, the norm is for you never to be short of anything that you really need. He's able to make grace abound to you. So if you, need to, you have to go and buy a new car, you go buy it. Go and buy a new refrigerator, you go buy it. That's, that's, these are the necessities of modern American living and God knows that and he's really willing to supply your necessities. He supplies your needs, he does not supply your greeds. And when the grace of God is properly working in your life, you always have all sufficiency. 
in all things. And, it, and if you read the NIV, it says, always having all sufficiency in all things at all times. I'll read it from the NIV. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things and at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. So God will supply your needs, but then what he's really after is giving you abundance that that is now to be released for the work of God. The sufficiency is for you, the abundance is for the work. Amen? Now that's what happens when the grace of God comes. You find that he will now adequately, adequately supply your resources. As it is written, verse 9, He has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness remains forever. You can read that verse in one of two ways. It either means God, if you read Psalm, 120, Psalm 112, where it comes from, you can see that this applies in two ways. First of all, it talks about God. God is the kind of God who is so righteous that he does make the seed available even to the poor. It doesn't matter how poor you are, it doesn't matter how needy you are, God has made available to you the resources to begin to start the process of getting out of your poverty and into the riches of God's abundance. It's there, but you're going to have to start by faith. You're going to have to start where you are and you're going to have to give yourself out of the poverty trap which you find yourself in today. You've got to say, well God, you've said in your word that you've, you've made available your resources to the poor. If you read Psalm 112, it's also talking about a righteous man. A righteous man's job is to provide seed for the poor man to begin his life of giving. So by scattering aboard his riches, you then release people, not just to meet their needs, but to give. Can you hear me? So I've got a double responsibility to the poor. I have to supply to them their needs, but I supply to them the resources to become great givers like me. And so when I go to India, I not only bless them with financial resources, but I teach them, I say, now if God still works. See, if you jump off a building in India, the law of gravity still works. If you start to give according to God's principles in India, the laws of God still work. And so I've taught them to give. You see, it's not enough to say in a patronising way, oh, you poor Indians, you, you're not expected to give. I tell you, they are expected to give. And if they don't learn to give, they're never going to get out of their poverty. So I supply their resources for them to begin to get out of their poverty trap and become great givers. And as they start to become great givers, you find that God, through me, has provided them with the resources for them to now become great givers. And for them, like the Macedonian churches, to become overwhelmingly, extravagantly abundant in their desire to become great givers. Does that make sense to you? So you can read that both ways, and both ways are true. The resource finally is God, but he uses people with resources to seed the poor people and to seed the poor areas to become areas of rich giving. So I've got a responsibility if I've got resources, not only to be a great giver, but to be seeding people into great giving. That's why I'm preaching to you this morning. I want you to know what I know, and much more besides. I want you to get so excited with this, say, ooh, 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 I can't wait to get into this. I'm going to, take, I'm going to work for ten extra hours in order to get money to give, not in order to get money to live. That's what it says in Ephesians 4. It says, work with your hands in order to have the resources to give. Have you ever thought, well, I'm going to get a second job, not to get a new home, not to get a new car, but in order to have plenty to give? Now that, that's getting the grace of giving into your heart. Amen. I'm excited about this. I hope you are. 
You're a bit flat on me, but never mind. Maybe it stuns you. Right, come to verse 10. Come to verse 10. Now, I per- this can be translated either way here. I prefer the positive statement, which the NU text has. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for proof, fed for food, will supply and will multiply the seed that you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. Let me take an illustration here. I, this, is, this is India, but it, it applies in America. In India, a lot of people live off a piece of land, they sow their rice, they, they harvest the rice themselves, they put the rice into bags, and that literally becomes their food supply for the year. I want you to imagine a little Indian farmer, he's sown his rice, he's harvested his rice, he's got 10 100 kilogram bags of rice. Now that's the whole food for the whole family for the year. Now the first thing that a farmer will do, if he's got any sense, he'll say, right, let's take one bag and put it on one side and that's the seed for next year. It's the first thing he does, not the last thing he does. He said, right family, if we don't put away the seed for sowing next year, we'll have nothing to reap a harvest with next year. So we're going to put away one bag of seed and we're going to live on the nine bags. And even if it's a bit tough at times, we will not touch the one bag of seed because we'll have nothing to sow next year. And so they live through the year on the nine bags and next year they plant the one bag and and they reap a tenfold harvest and so they put away one bag, live on nine bags, reap reap the ten bags and so in that way they maintain their level of living. They do not increase their prosperity, they just maintain their prosperity. You see, that's roughly, if you work it out, that's roughly how it works. You get about a tenfold return on the seed sown in a rice field, because I asked them and did the calculations. It exactly fits the scripture, which I thought was so interesting. You see, if you are just a faithful tither, what you've done is you've guaranteed to maintain your economic level. You don't increase your economic level, you just stay where you are. Amen? See, when you've got seed, you've got a choice. You can either eat the seed or you can sow the seed. If you grind the seed into bread and eat it, then it's not available for sowing. If you deny yourself the bread and keep the seed for sowing, then you're going to increase your ability to sow. Amen? So let's imagine that this this farmer wants to get out of his present level of just surviving. He says, family, I know it's going to be tough, but this year we've reaped We've ripped ten bags of rice, as usual. What I'm going to do this year is I'm going to put aside two bags of rice and keep them for seed and somehow we're going to manage to survive on just eight bags of rice. It'll be real tough. We're going to get hungry at times but just think of the harvest we're going to get by keeping that back for sowing rather than for eating. And so they eat less rice. They feel a bit hungry. They, they don't feel so well fed but they somehow manage through the year to survive as a family on eight bags of rice. When it comes to sowing time next year, they've now got two bags to sow. When they sow next year, they, and when they reap next year, they reap 20 bags. Now he's beginning to move out of the maintenance level into the prosperity level. Can you see the difference here? See, many, many people who are faithful tithers, their, their standard of living doesn't change because, you see, tithing doesn't promise to change your standard of living. It promises to maintain your standard of living. God will give back to you ten times what you give to him and you'll just maintain your level. You will not prosper because you're not going beyond the tithe. 
But when you see this principle and say, right, although it's going to be tough, and it means cutting back, we'll deny ourselves the new car, we won't do that extension, we won't put down carpets on the floor, we won't buy that new furniture, we're not going to have that fantastic holiday, we're going to cut right back and we're going to invest in the kingdom of God and we're going to put in 20% next year. Well, at the end of the year, well, over the long run, you're going to find that you're now on a prosperity curve because you've got beyond maintenance level. Do you hear what I'm saying? So God provides for you in the material resources he gives to you. He provides you with seed which you can either eat, turn it into bread and eat off it. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong about that. Or you can sow it for the purposes of greater harvest. And each of us have the choice. Well, I know years ago, my wife and I, very, very quickly, God led us past the 10%. He led us past the 20%. He led us on to another percentage of all that we received. And even when we were going through the tough times, we kept faith about the percentage that we were going to sow rather than eat off. And over these 30 years or so that we've been a Christian, I've watched our prosperity curve go like that. It's gone up and down, but I tell you, its growth has been consistently higher, and now I can look to God for resources to give. Amen? You can do the same. These are biblical principles that we're teaching you here. And if you've got the grace of God upon your life, there's no greater joy than this. Let me just read these few verses and we're going to close. I'm going to start at verse 9. He has scattered abroad his gifts. I'm reading in the NIV. He has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor and his righteousness endures forever. So by the principles of righteousness, if you sow, you're going to reap more than you sowed. Okay? Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will, uh, will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Do you believe that? How many of you believe that verse? See, that's as true a word as the promise that your sins are forgiven. If God isn't righteous here, he's not righteous anywhere. Amen? If God doesn't make this work for you, how do you know that you're not going to go to hell after all? You've only got his word to go on. Amen? See, this requires faith like being saved requires faith. The grace of God to save you is the same as the grace of God that prospers you. It's the same grace. And it operates through the same principle of faith. You start to work the principles by faith and God will work the grace into your life to fulfill his word of righteousness. Amen? Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will en enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You, underline that, you will be made rich in every way. Do you like that verse? <laughs> you will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. Say, oh I like that, that sounds good. You will be rich in every way so you can be generous on every occasion. Because you lived on eight bags of rice rather than nine, you're now beginning to move into abundance. Amen? You're now beginning to reap a harvest which is so great that you hardly know what to do with it. You can be generous in every way because you become rich by applying these principles because you're being driven by the passion of grace. Saying, I want to become a great giver! How do I get, Lord, out of my present material situation into prosperity to become a great giver? And God says, just keep back an extra bag and sow it into my kingdom and it will increase. 
You will become rich in every way. I love that verse, don't you? You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. The service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but it is overflowing in many expressions of thankfulness to God. You see, just think about it. If you fulfill this principle and start to release the riches that God releases to you all around the world, there are going to be people giving thanks to God for you. David started with that lovely quote. I can't remember exactly. He says, now, can you tell me again what it said? We, we exist temporarily on what we give. We exist temporarily by what we take, but we will live forever by what we give. Okay. We exist temporarily by what we take, but we exist forever by what we give. And all around the world, not that I'm anything fantastic and I'm not suggesting anything like that, but all around the world, in Africa and India and other places, there are people that are giving thanks. There are buildings, there are orphanages, there are schools, there are people whose lives have been changed. There's evangelistic ministries that are all happening because we tapped into these principles. You can do the same. I've never written a begging letter in my life and I never will. All I've done is to work the principles that I'm teaching you this morning. Oh, it's wonderful, isn't it? to be filled with the grace of God. Oh God, I want this grace. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, just said, oh, he said, you're so rich in knowledge, you're so rich in faith. He said, but I want this grace to abound in you also. And I'm sending Titus to you just for this very thing. Now, if I've come to you this weekend, it may be just for this one thing, to release the grace of giving in your life, that you may abound in this grace also. It doesn't matter where you are on the economic ladder right now, you can end up as a person who's experiencing through the grace of God a passionate heart to give and then again, through the grace of God, the resources which allow you to become rich and allow you then to fulfil your heart's desire to be generous on every occasion. Now this applies to individuals, it also applies to churches. Churches that obey this principle will be churches that are blessed materially because I can trust you with the resources because I can see what you're doing with them. Amen? It's an individual thing, it's also a corporate thing. And I know many examples around the world and some of them come from so-called third world countries. They've got such a passion to give. I remember years ago in 1981 going to Dr. Paul Yonggi Cho's church it was the third, first, third, I mean, the average income in those days was about $400 a year was the average income of the church. They were not massively rich. But boy, did they know about giving. They blessed us, they honoured us, they cared for us, they treated us like lords and treated Eileen like the very queen of Sheba. They gave her every, every facility. And at the end, I thought, well, I'd better pay for it. I said, well, what, what shall I do to pay for it? He said, he said, just receive it as a love gift from the Lord, brother. If you want to put something in, that's up to you. And I thought, this is staggering. When they took up an offering for mission work in Japan, the Sunday we were there, it amounted to over a quarter of a million dollars for them to go and bless the people that had persecuted and tormented them for more than 40 years. I thought, this is grace. This is grace. 
This is grace. It flows out of Dr. Paul Yonggi Cho, or David Yonggi Cho as he now calls himself, but it also was right through the church. It was into the very woof and the fibre of the church. And beloved, I want this grace to be in you also. That's the passion of my heart. Let's stand, shall we? Let's stand. And let's pray. Have you heard the word of God this morning? Is it, is it scriptural? Is it absolutely the word of the living God? Does it work for you? Let's say to the Lord, Lord, I don't want to live in Moses' law of giving. I don't even want to stop at the New Testament law. I don't want to live in maintenance giving. Giving my tithe and keeping at my present economic level. I want to go beyond that. You've shown me something. You've shown me the grace of giving. You've shown me what motivated that Macedonian church. They pleaded with the Apostle Paul for the privilege of giving way beyond their means. Oh God, work that grace in me. It's not possible naturally. But grace isn't natural. It's supernatural. It's the divine power of God. It's the divine life of God. It's the divine resources of God. Poured into my life as a free gift to cause me to live like God in this present world. Now Lord, in Jesus' name, I reach out for that grace. I want the grace of giving to come upon my life, change my heart, take away my fear, give me the faith, give me the passion to become a giver like God, to have a grace-filled heart. And then, Lord, when you see my heart, is in tune with your heart will you then release to me the grace of abundant supply Lord you've said to those with grace filled hearts you are able to make all grace abound to me in all things at all times so that I always having all sufficiency in all things, I also might have abundance for every good work. Now, Lord, you set a vision before me. I want to live that way. Now, send the Spirit of grace upon me right now. Deliver me from the curse of poverty. Just as Jesus died to take away my sin, he took the curse of poverty to deliver me from that curse and to make me rich, materially rich, 
in him. And I'm claiming that promise now. I'm claiming that grace right now to work in my life and work in the life of this church until our material situation is absolutely transformed by the grace of God. Let's open up our spirits now. Just begin to speak in tongues. Say, oh God, let your grace fall upon me now. Change my heart. Change me. Just begin to speak in tongues. Begin to worship. And and as best you know how, just begin to drink in the grace of God. Change my heart, Lord. Change my very mindset. Change my attitude. Take away my unbelief. Take away my fear. Take away, Lord, my, my nervousness in these things. Take away my selfishness. And may I be filled with all the fullness of your grace. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah.